0: A Podcast One Production. The following episode contains elements that may cause distress to some listeners. If it does, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hi, I'm Rosie Waterland. This is Mum Says My Memoir Is a Lie. You will end up in a mental institution. When a guy wearing nothing but a bedsheet as a toga pushes in front of you in the dinner line so he can get better dibs on the custard, you know you've hit rock bottom. I was 24 and I was in a mental institution, pretty much nailing life. It all began when I found the boy, the perfect, funny, good-looking boy. My year-long destructive partying phase was over and I was looking for a distraction that was more permanent. I didn't want to just have sex in club toilets or do a line of coke to make the thoughts go away. That high never lasted long enough. What I needed was another Josh. I needed another boy to make me feel loved. Of course, what I really needed was to learn how to love myself, to learn how to survive on my own and to actually face the pain and trauma from my past. But I had been through too much for one damn year, so when Luca told me he loved me, that he wanted to marry me and have my babies, I gladly let myself be enveloped by it. If only I'd known that less than two years later, I'd be hustling in a dinner line at a mental home, and I don't even like custard." Luca and I met at the movies. We both worked there with a bunch of other uni students and creative people, making popcorn and cleaning out the slushy machines. After couch hopping for what seemed like an eternity, I moved into a share house in Chippendale with a few other cinema staff. On my first night there, Luca stayed over and he kissed me. So, um, I kind of like you, he said in his charmingly geeky way. I kind of like you too, I replied, and we kissed again. Ugh. I feel like I wrote this like it was so romantic and he ends up such a dick. It would have been the perfect romantic moment if Luca hadn't already had a girlfriend. Kissing him that night was probably one of the worst things I've ever done, but I was so desperate to be loved that my usual moral compass was pointing only towards him. He had left every girl he'd ever been with for another, and in the back of my mind that worried me, but he promised me that I was different. He cheated on or lied to all those girls because he was confused and didn't care about them, but he knew he wanted to be with me. He could see a future with me. I was the girl he loved, and I believed him. He said every exact thing that I'd ever wanted to hear from a guy. I was intoxicated from the second he said family and kissed me on the nose. I was smart enough to know that I shouldn't be getting into any kind of relationship." After relying on Josh, then relying on drugs and random sex, it was time that I learned how to rely on myself. I was also smart enough to know that any guy who cheats on someone else to be with you is eventually going to cheat on you to be with someone else. But the lure of a warm hug from a man who could make me forget my problems was too tempting to let go, even if he was an arthole. And although I didn't realise it at the time, an asshole was exactly what I needed. My desperation to be loved needed to come up against someone so selfish and shitty that it would force me into total meltdown. I needed a disaster to push me down to rock bottom so that I could finally learn how to claw my way out and build my own life. Luca was that disaster. The first warning sign was that he said he loved me after a week, which, believe me, is never, ever true. Someone telling you they love you when you've only been dating a week is like someone telling you they like two and a half men when they've only seen the opening credits. It's a very big and very misguided call to make. There is just a whole lot more terrible shit coming that you couldn't possibly anticipate from only seeing the fun beginning. You only really know if love is there once you've waded through the mess and are still interested in sticking around. Other warning signs came thick and fast. We had to keep our relationship a secret for the first few months because he didn't want anyone to know that he'd left his previous girlfriend to be with me. When I eventually snapped and told people, he said I was selfish and I had to promise to give him one head job a day forever to get him to stay with me. It was my suggestion and although half joking, I was still only half joking. He wasn't interested in hearing about my fam Oh god, he's an asshole. <sighs> He wasn't interested in hearing about my family or my background because it made him uncomfortable. He seemed exasperated by my anxiety and depression. He would often belittle me in front of his friends. Basically, Luca was just a young, selfish guy. He could be very sweet, but he always cared about his needs first, and since he had cheated on someone to be with me, I was just waiting for him to betray me in the same way. I had picked a saviour who was guaranteed to abandon me. Subconsciously, I must have known things needed to explode, and he was the perfect dynamite. After the first few months, when I could tell that his interest in me was waning, I panicked. I couldn't handle losing yet another promise of a family. And just like when I felt my mum pull away, and when I felt Josh pull away, and when I felt my aunt and uncle pull away, my body went into battle mode. My mental health began to deteriorate pretty rapidly. I was cutting myself. My eating disorder was out of control and I was gaining a lot of weight. If Luca didn't text me back after 10 minutes, I became convinced he was with another girl. I was having constant panic attacks and I expected him to drop everything to help me fix the problem. I took to spending hours sitting in my wardrobe because even the open space of my bedroom made me nervous. I attempted suicide two more times all because Luca wouldn't answer the phone or would leave my house after an argument. I just couldn't face the pain of being alone and having the thoughts and memories come back. I was falling apart, and Luca realised a lot quicker than Josh that he didn't want any part of it. But just like with all his previous girlfriends, he was too scared to leave me until he'd found someone else.' He said he wasn't sure if he loved me anymore and that he needed to have a break. I naively took that to mean, I definitely love you, I just need some time to remember that. What he actually meant was, I definitely don't love you anymore, but there's this girl at work I like and I want to see how that goes before I completely cut you loose.' We spent about a month being together, but not really being together. I would sleep with him whenever he wanted, partly because I craved closeness and partly because I thought it would make him love me. Side note, having sex with a guy who doesn't love you will not make him love you. The awful thing about the sex during that month was that he refused to kiss me. It seemed like his way of reminding me that he hadn't decided yet, like a sexual disclaimer. You can't get mad at me for sleeping with you because I made it clear with the no kissing thing that it was just sex. He called me, really drunk one night, at 3am and told me that he missed me and just wanted to be with me. He came to my house, said he was an idiot for ever letting me go and then passed out on my bed. I spent the night physically holding his arms around me, nuzzling my head into his drunken snoring face. Something in me knew that in the morning he would take it back and I just wanted to be held before it was over, even if I had to hold his arms there myself. In the morning he took it back." A few weeks later, he admitted that he'd been seeing a girl from work and now she was leaving her boyfriend so they could be together. Also, he'd finally decided that he wasn't in love with me. I let out a scream of pain down the phone that even shocked me. He told me it was unfair of me to be angry, since technically he had broken up with me over a month ago, and technically that was true, but it was a shitty technicality. A technicality that I knew was going to come back and haunt me every time I remembered he'd been willing to put his dick in me, but refused to kiss me. I was alone again, and it was my fault. Luca had been selfish, definitely, but I would also pushed him away with my craziness and panic attacks and trust issues and cutting and suicidal thoughts and crying and memories... I couldn't imagine ever finding one person in my life who wouldn't leave. All I wanted was to swallow every pill I could find and die, which had become my usual go-to plan at that point. But I decided to try something different that day – I knew I wanted to die because I wanted the pain to stop, so maybe if I got the pain to stop, I wouldn't have to die. I sat on my bed, a pile of pills on the doona in front of me, and instead of picking them up and swallowing them, I called my sister and told her I was suicidal. I told her that I needed help. I told her that I was thinking about death and I wanted it to stop, and I was worried that if it didn't stop soon, I would try it again. She came and picked me up. I was in my pyjamas and could barely move. I was panicking and hysterical. She took me to the emergency room where we waited for hours. A fairly exasperated nurse assessed me. So what's the problem? I could hardly speak. Um, I'm feeling really suicidal and I'm worried about what I'll do. What was that? Can you speak up? She snapped, getting distracted by something going on in another room. I'm um, suicidal. But you haven't attempted... I didn't quite know how to answer that question. This was getting too hard. All I wanted to do was go home and swallow a bunch of pills and go to sleep forever. Well, I have before, but not today. So you didn't feel bad enough this time that you decided to go through with it today? Well, no, I did. It's just I'm I'm worried about what I'll do, so I thought this time I'd try to reach out before I did anything. Right. She looked bored. Have you made specific plans? Have you thought about exactly how you'd do it? I hate that question. Every time you admit to a medical professional that you're depressed or suicidal, they ask you if you've made specific plans. Like it's a dinner reservation and they want to know if you're serious about turning up. I think the idea is that if you haven't made specific plans, you're not really going to go through with it, which is bullshit. Let me tell you something. Any person who feels suicidal enough that they go and talk to someone about it has made specific fucking plans. People reach out because they're told time and time again that that's what they should do. Then they get asked about specifics in a way that always seems accusatory. Like if you had a plan, you would have just gone through with it and you wouldn't be here clogging up the ER. Yes, I mumbled. What she said? Speak up. I could barely get my voice above a whimper. Also, it's humiliating to have to tell someone who looks like they're itching to go to lunch some of the most private thoughts you've ever had. Um, pills, I said. I was going to take pills. What pills? I don't know, I said, tears welling in my eyes. Just whatever I could find. She was writing on my chart and looking at me. She told me they were going to give me a letter to give my psychiatrist and send me home with some Valium. I started to panic. Wait, what? No, I need help. I need to stay here. I think you just need a little something to calm you down. And as long as there's someone with you, there's no reason you can't go home. We'll have someone from mental health services call you in a few days to see how you're doing. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Finally, for the first time ever, I had done what I was supposed to do. Instead of taking the pills, I had reached out to someone who took me to the hospital. And now the hospital was sending me home with more pills. I mustered every bit of strength I had in my chaotic brain. ''No,'' I said as assertively as I could manage, considering I was wearing pyjamas at lunchtime. ''If you send me home, I will kill myself. I need to stay here.'' She sighed. ''Are you threatening to kill yourself unless we admit you?'' ''Yes,'' I said. ''I'm afraid of what I'll do if I go home.'' "'You're afraid or you'll actually do it.' "'I couldn't believe I was playing this game of verbal chicken "'with someone I desperately needed help from. "'I'll actually do it,' I said. "'Fine,' she said before getting up and walking out of the room. "'About an hour later, I was admitted into an emergency mental health bed "'for an overnight stay. "'The next day, I was discharged. "'They didn't think I needed to be moved to the long-term facility "'because I hadn't actually attempted.' I got in a taxi, went home, found every pill in the house and took them all. These weren't just headache tablets, this was everything. Everything in my flatmate's room, everything in my room, everything in the bathroom, everything in the kitchen. My head felt like it was on fire and then nothing. I woke up in the emergency room. Tubes coming out of a million different places and my two best friends standing over me. Hey, crazy lady, Tony said, smiling. I love that I had the kind of friends who would make inappropriate jokes while I was lying in a hospital bed. Bad day? We all burst out laughing. Apparently, my sister had been worried when I was discharged earlier that day. She called my flatmate and my best friend, Jacob, who found me unconscious on my flatmate's bed. They called an ambulance and I was rushed to hospital. Was it because of Luca? Jacob asked me when Tony was in the bathroom. No, I said, I don't know. Not really. I'm just sick of feeling like I want to die. It's all I think about. I can't turn my brain off. I really need help, Jacob. They're going to get you help now, sweetie, he said, looking determined. I fell back asleep. In the morning, I was told I was going to be discharged with a note to my psychiatrist and some Valium. I was too defeated to fight back, but Jacob wasn't. You just try and argue with a bitchy gay, you'll never win. Jacob was not leaving that hospital unless he knew I was going to be admitted somewhere long term. He demanded to see whoever was in charge, and a big Eastern European doctor with a very seedy moustache and a booming voice came to meet us about an hour later. I'm fairly certain he was some kind of epic porn star in his homeland." "'Listen,' he said, "'we have mental ward here, but it's not what she wants. Trust me, these people are crazy. They finger-paint in there. Do you want to just sit around finger-painting?' "'Rosie is suicidal,' Jacob snapped. She has said that if she goes home, she will try to kill herself again. She doesn't give a fuck about being with people who finger paint. She just needs help. I can't believe she's reaching out and nobody is willing to help her. Surely there's a duty of care issue if you send her home and she dies. In fact, I'd like to see you write it in the chart. Rosie has said if we send her home, she will kill herself. Write that down. The mustache porn doctor looked at me. Have you thought of a specific plan? Of course she's thought of a specific fucking plan, Jacob said. Last night she took over a hundred pills. How's that for a plan? She needs help. Fine, the doc said, throwing his arms up in the air like he'd just lost it. Bingo. We will admit her, but I'm telling you, she will hate it. Jacob saved my life that day. If he hadn't been there, I would have given up and gone home, and I hate to think what I would have done. Went up against Australia's shitty public mental health system. Never underestimate the power of having a very sassy gay man on your side. He was not going to stop until that possibly once a porn star doctor gave me a bed. And what a bed it was. An ER nurse took me over to a separate mental hospital. It was about a five-minute walk away, fenced off with barbed wire. The doors were locked and security checked us as we walked in. I was taken to the room that I would stay in for the next few weeks. Everything was suicide-proof. There was no way you could hang anything. The windows were made of two layers of glass so that the blinds could sit between them and not be touched. There were no knobs on any of the drawers, cupboards or doors. I sat on the tiny single hospital bed for a while and took a long, deep breath. I was safe. I couldn't hurt myself here. For the first time in days, I started to feel calm. I quietly ventured out to the main area to see what I had signed up for, and to possibly get in on that finger painting if it really was a thing. It was pretty grim. I'd described the decor as suicide-proof, nursing home chic. There was a main common area with a tiny TV. Next to that was the nurse's station and the kitchen, our only access to which was via a window that food came out of. The yard outside was basically just some grass and a table and chairs. It was surrounded by a very ominous-looking, very high fence. The toilets were... Well, have you ever tried going to the toilet at a train station? Imagine that, but if the toilet was used exclusively by mentally ill people. In the first one I entered, I found shit smeared on the walls. The others all smelled like they'd recently had smeared shit cleaned from the walls. Then there were the patients. I think the majority of them were homeless, and I actually saw one of them begging on George Street in Sydney a few years later. One man had just had some serious brain surgery, which had left him with a shaved head and a mammoth scar. With no clothes and no possessions, he had to walk around wearing hospital-issued pyjamas, and thanks to the surgery, everything he did was in slow motion. I once timed him take over five minutes to lift his hand, scratch his face, then put his hand back down again. There were two pretty rough women who I think had been transferred there from some nightmarish rehab prison hybrid. They were epic and horrifying, and if they weren't calling each other fucking cunts, they were looking for someone else to go after. One guy walked around with a tampon in his mouth, which I could never quite work out, although given how little I understood periods when I first got them, I would surprised I'd never tried that myself. Then, of course, there was PK, the man who insisted on walking around wearing nothing but his bedsheet as a toga. I mostly kept to myself, except at mealtimes, which were terrifying. The dinner line was competitive, usually with the rough cunt ladies leading the charge. It was like a school canteen, but with 60 mentally ill adults hustling for a bigger portion of gravy. More than a few fights broke out in that line, probably because a lot of the people had been having to hustle for food for a very long time. I gladly took last position every night, even if it did mean I got the dodgy, overcooked end piece of lamb. I would rather eat dry meat than get stabbed with a fork. I spent virtually my entire first week sleeping. Public mental health care isn't exactly hands-on. You were basically just plonked in a locked building to stop you from harming either yourself or others. The plan to help you stops there. Every few days, I would see a psychiatrist for five minutes to make sure my medication was right, and that was it. The rest of the time, I could watch the tiny TV, finger paint, or sit in the garden and watch the rough ladies yell cunt at each other. That's about it. I preferred, partly out of terror, but mostly out of the need to be alone, to stay in my room, where I slept and slept and slept and slept. A nurse would sometimes come in and wake me to give me a pill, and then I would go back to sleep. After that first week of sleep, my brain felt less chaotic. I started to stay up all night writing writing obsessively, writing journals, writing letters to Luca that I would never send, page after page trying to figure out exactly how I ended up in a mental ward at the age of 24. I thought a lot about why I had relied so much on Josh and Luca to get me through. I thought about the kind of person I had imagined I would be when I grew up, all those Oscar speeches I used to give in my room, all those incredible goals I was sure I was going to achieve – I had never pictured a man in any of that. Why had I now become so desperate to be loved that I had tried to kill myself just because I got dumped? My writing sessions became very self-indulgent and existential. There was lots of staring out the window, sighing deeply and trying to collect my thoughts. I didn't keep any of those pages, but I'm sure I'd cringe if I looked at them now. It'd be like seeing a high school book covered in pictures of Justin Timberlake back when his hair looked like two-minute noodles – But all that feverish stream of consciousness word vomit did lead me to realise one thing. There was a lot of trauma from my past that I needed to deal with, and nobody could deal with it but me. I needed to learn how to be alone. I needed to learn how to be my own hero. I needed to stop waiting for a man to fly in and save me. I needed to stop pretending I was cool enough to take drugs in club bathrooms. I needed to roll up my sleeves, get to work on my mental health, and fly in and save myself. So after three and a half weeks in the mental institution, most of which I spent trying not to get killed in that dinner line, I got out of bed, brushed my hair, and told them I wanted to leave. I was going to conquer life. I was going to be like Winona Ryder at the end of that movie where she was nuts. I was going to be like any female character who finds herself at the end of any feel-good movie. I was going to get my shit together. Then I spent the next three years hiding in my room, slowly gaining 90 kilos. Whoops. Oh, that's hard to read, Mum. Is it? Well, I noticed you weren't looking at your phone that time, so that's a positive. Did you find that one interesting? I wasn't listening.
1: I I made a point (laughs) of putting it down so you wouldn't have a go at me.
0: (laughs) Anyway,
1: last week I only glimpsed at it. Um... Man, the
0: mental health system's. Fucked. I didn't
1: think you were that long in in there for three and a half weeks. I didn't mm. think it was that
0: long. Yeah, it was three and a half weeks.
1: Yes, it. You know, it's really difficult for people who are depressed. It's just not the right place for depressed people. Mm. It's just not. I mean, I didn't
0: know. Never had been. It was not so to me that like it wasn't. because suicide, constant suicidal thoughts and suicidal ideation is a symptom that i've had as part of my ptsd so mm-hmm. and it was really bad for a while in my like mid 20s back around when i was with luca yeah and they always say like there are all those organizations that say you know um tell people if you're not okay and ask someone if they're okay. And if you feel like someone's not okay, then talk to them because if they're not okay, then we can do something. But it's like when somebody says that they're not okay, then nobody knows what the fuck to do. There's There's nothing you can do for them. And I had been feeling that bad for a while and I'd dealt with these suicide, constant suicidal thoughts for a while and this was the first time I'd actually said, actually wait, I'm not going to let my, you know, emotions take over. I'm actually going to go to the hospital and tell them what I'm thinking because then they'll help me and they just s- want to send you home.
1: Yeah, it's very, It's that's, that's probably the most difficult uh, mental illness to deal with is depression. Because, like, there's exogenous depression and there's endogenous depression endogenous is where there's no clear reason for it exogenous is like you're breaking up with your boyfriend um Mm. you know you've lost all your money on the stock market that kind of thing Mm, mm, mm. so they quite often think that you're depressed because of certain things that have stresses that have happened in your life you know what i mean Mm. so they don't take you as seriously
0: I mean, I tried explaining to them like this is a problem that I have. My psychiatrist has explained it to me this way, like a brain injury. Like post traumatic stress disorder is a brain injury and my brain has developed in certain ways where it it would just malfunction like this. And um and I would try and explain to them like it's like they just think I don't know, I just never felt like they took me seriously ever. Like I just didn't, and when I finally told them and then they sent me home and I remember Jacob was just like, he couldn't believe they were sending me home. He couldn't believe it. Cause he's never really dealt with like serious mental illness, I think, except really with me. And so he was another person who just assumed, well, when you tell a doctor you want to kill yourself, they help you
1: yeah there's such um huge pressure on the on beds you know what i mean mm. so they're reluctant really to admit people long term they prefer to admit you overnight now because I, I know that there was a, a few instances weren't there where they just kept you overnight that happened um yeah a few years later didn't it
0: no, that was all the same time. It was all in the few weeks leading up to this. Yeah, I mean, it got really bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like my brain had just, just gone Cause haywire.
1: Because I know I was I was talking to a nurse who was looking after you and I was just letting him you know about your history, you know? Because I
0: got admitted to Cause a ward. they Because want,
1: they wanted to discharge you. I, I got admitted said, to a ward that you had it, worked
0: at, so you knew the stuff. Oh, the one at... yeah. yeah. They were so frustrated having me there. They were so
1: pissed off. That particular unit, PEC unit, mm, Psychiatric Intensive Care Unit, is is basically strictly like overnight Mm. before you... They assess you, then they send you up to a ward if necessary. But they, pro- they, you know, they try and avoid admitting people. Mm. They s- seriously, they do. It's really for depressed people. If you don't have private health insurance... You're fucked. You are, you are fucked.
0: Because I didn't have private like health insurance. Like, seriously? I was a student. I didn't have anything. You
1: no. Know, they really let down people with depression. They seriously do. I mean, it's... Really, really bad. Mm. They can deal. They can deal with mania and all that <coughs> kind of stuff, and and like chronic schizophrenics, depression. No, they can't. They just can't deal with it.
0: Mm. It's really weird to me reading that. Like, I'm. At, it's good that it happened. It needed to happen. I think then, back then, because what? I'm 31 now, so 24. It's like seven years, seven years ago. I can't believe, like, I was so reliant on boyfriends. Yeah. Like, I'm not now. Like, I'm not now. And I think it's because that needed to happen, honestly. Well, like, I think I, you've never put yourself in that situation ever again, really.
1: I mean, you broke, you always uh, what uh, Mike and you broke up with Mike. Yeah. And it didn't really phase you at all.
0: And then I dated James. You you didn't have a problem. And James and I broke up and then I dated Max. Yeah, it's like you didn't fall apart
1: anymore. Well, and also I started
0: breaking up with guys who were shit. Like, (laughs) I wasn't scared to be alone. I wasn't just going to stay with someone just because it was someone to stay with. Like, I did that with Luca. There were red flags with Luca Luca from, like, the first couple of months we were together and I think if I was dating him now I would have broken up with him after a couple of months but I ended up staying with him for two years and then we
1: were together for two years
0: yeah and then he treated me so badly and was such a dick and I just I yeah I've definitely learned a lot like I yeah I can't say going to hospital was helpful in that they did anything because they didn't. I literally just was in my room by myself all day. Well that like, that I suppose that that really gave you the opportunity to really
1: think about your life and and every single little aspect of it and what you could change to move on.
0: Well, yeah, and I think also I needed to stop I was using boyfriends like band-aids, I think. You know what I mean? I had a lot of you know, really intense trauma to deal with that I wasn't. I was like, why would you, like, why would I deal with all this difficult trauma when I can just go hang out with my boyfriend? He makes me feel better. That's so unhealthy. You know what I mean? So many people do it though, don't they? Well, I ended up having a complete meltdown, so it doesn't work forever. Me. Yeah, mental. the mental ward was um, weird sad it was sad but you were you were mainly in peck apart from concord weren't you i wasn't i feel like you think i was in all the time i was i went for one night yeah because then you then you went to Concord, and that's where
1: i had to um talk on your behalf because they were going to discharge you i didn't know you did that you gave him your history and that i was the eastern
0: european guy
1: I gave him your history and, and yeah, I think so. And, the uh, fact, I was really worried about you.
0: I didn't know you did that. Yeah. I thought Jacob for, did it all. I spaked him for at least half an hour. Jacob threw down with that guy. Jacob was, like, pissed off. I think if Jacob hadn't been there, I I probably would have been sent home. So the PEC unit, um, you didn't, You,
1: it was quite obvious they really didn't want you there. Yeah. Yes. They were really frustrated I was there. They, there's a there's a nurse that goes into the ER, which is connected to it, and sh- it's their job just to
0: assess patient in the emergency well, she, area.
1: And then they bring you in if they if they really wanna let you stay overnight.
0: She's the one that whoever had that job <clears throat> was. Oh, it's so bad. Like like I was so. I'd be really interested to know who it was. I was so um. I could barely talk. Like, I could barely move. I was just that. I'd, I'd know them. And the fact that they say, have you attempted? Explain to me. Oh, oh, if you haven't, then explain to me your plan. What's your plan? Like, and she was getting so exasperated with me. And I was like, no, I haven't attempted today. Like, I have in the past. But I'm here telling you because I thought that's what I was meant to do. And it's like, it's this weird catch-22. It's like unless you've attempted suicide they don't think it's serious enough but then if you go in before you've attempted like it's it's like you can't that you can't yeah, win i, know.
1: I mean you've got to, you got you have to have a plan like a plan definite plan and you've got the tablets at home or you've got the gun at home or you got the sharp knife at home yeah
0: but like and you can't or you've got the hair
1: dryer over She's... the bath at home <laughs> <laughs> you know over the years, I've known a lot of patients who have gone home and killed themselves. Mm, that they've doesn't. Su- that doesn't. They've surprise committed me. suicide after they've been in there and they've been sent home. Well, they sent me home, and I yep. went home until every pill easily. in the house. I mean, you think about the people who've committed suicide. How do you know that they haven't been in, put themselves into, you know, tried to get themselves admitted to hospital in the previous week? This and, is very and interesting they were
0: rejected. This is very interesting talking to you because you're a mental health nurse or you were a mental mm-hmm. health nurse. Do you like this isn't the conversation I expected to be having. But I'm interested, like well, that as opens someone up the who problems with mental health. Well, as someone who worked in psychiatric wards. Mm. What are your thoughts on the fact that they just send people home like that? Like, you're one of the people who... Do you really want to know? Well, yeah, but, I mean, there's not enough beds. I understand it from Get the nurse's side. private health insurance. Yeah,
1: right? <laughs> no, no, I know, but that's not possible, you see. So the, the people who aren't able to afford that, they're stuffed.
0: Basically, that's it, they're stuffed.
1: I mean, plus, someone who's depressed... It's not the right place to be with schizophrenic, chronic oh. schizophrenics who are, like, really unwell, people who are manic. I mean, it's not the right place to be, but
0: where else can I was pe- they be put, really? I was petrified. Where else can they be put? I was petrified the whole time I was there. Can't blame you. There were not- some really cray-cray people. Yeah. people there like and I say that with empathy but You're like right. I was scared like there was like I remember one night Rhiannon came to visit with Alira and Taylor and Alira was really young because this was seven years ago so Alira was like six or seven and um And we all had to get locked into a visitor's room because a patient was going nuts and throwing furniture around the ward. (laughs) You're laughing. But I was scared. I'm not a mental health nurse. I was
1: petrified. Stuff like this happens all the time.
0: That's the trouble. And like, I just, and also everyone ignored me. Like, all the nurses ignored me. It was like. I remember there was one It's too
1: it's too hard to deal with someone who's depressed. It takes time
0: and patience.
1: Like I remember making sure every shift that I went and I spoke to all my patients individually mm. and sometimes and then I try and speak to the depressed ones even longer because I had that problem myself. I de- I I dealt with depression myself. That's I was on medication. So, it's so
0: interesting, Mum, that y- you have been a mental health nurse but then you've also been a patient a lot of times like you've been on both sides of it and i it sounds like, like when, it made you a better mental health nurse no because well, you understood
1: when, yeah well i've got i think i have an enormous amount of empathy because mm-hmm. i can understand where they're coming from and i can understand how they feel and a lot of Mental health professionals aren't able to do that. They're much more comfortable with the chronic schizophrenics, with the Mm. people who are, 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 you know, are manic and so forth.
0: There was one nurse at the mental ward at Concord and he was new. I remember it was like his first day, the day I was admitted because I Mm. saw him getting like... You could just tell he was new. That and was I, bet, I bet he was talking to you. Yeah, he was. Yes, exactly. He was the only nurse who the the almost month I was there. Yeah. Because I literally slept all day. Yeah. And he would come into my room and he would say, like, hey, I think, you know, why don't you get up? Like, you should go for a walk. It's probably not best for you that you're sleeping all day. Like, he was, like, and he'd just sit on my bed and he'd just talk to me and, like... He seemed like honest, and he would ask me about like my background and my family and stuff, and he was the only nurse who seemed to like spend more than 30 seconds with me ever. Like I literally just got given medication and, and food. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I can imagine now you're he, But he had a massive impact on me, and I can't help but That's think. Like, and it's interesting to me that you straight away knew that – He was new, so he was the only one. Because it's like the rest of them were so jaded and bored and didn't care. Or lazy. And he was so nice, that man. Mm. It's messed up, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's very hard. Got to get private health insurance, man. I remember yeah, but going then, to visit you and know, you, then, when then you, you have,
1: have to. I mean, you can't. You got to wait months to be able to access the care. I mean, I had private health insurance, and when I needed to um, go into hospital, mm. you know, the the private one I went went into at mm. Wentworthville, mm. um, I had to wait three months. Yeah, but that place- for my cover to include psychiatric care. But that place was swish. That was. That luxurious. was nice. Movie as, stars go there and everything.
0: It w- yeah, I've read. Um, it's really. I've nice. read about famous people, and I'm like, oh, Mum stayed there as well, and but man, I couldn't afford that. I was a bloody student, and after Luca broke up with me, the worst thing was because we worked at the same place, and he left me for this girl, who worked there as well. And he refused to quit. And so I had to quit, even yeah, though he lived at home and he didn't need the money. And and so I had to quit and then I had to work at Kmart to pay never. the rent. <laughs> it was so bad. Uh, can I just say that the girl he left me for uh, never did actually break up with her boyfriend, so she was still with her boyfriend while she was with him. And she was dating another guy from our work, so she was three-timing all of them. Mm. And then Luca found out and um, he, like, came back to me and told me he was really sorry and sort of, like, tentatively tried to, I don't know. Like, I think he did that thing where he didn't quite want to get back together with me but he was like, I fucked up and she was a bitch and I can't believe she did that to me and, and, like, let's maybe start hanging out again, like, basically let's just keep having sex again until I find someone <gasps> better was basically oh, his offer. Oh, my God. He was a real a low life. Well, I mean, seriously, he didn't treat me particularly well. But then I will also admit that I wasn't the easiest to deal with. No, you weren't. Because my mental health was pretty bad.
1: You're not the easiest to deal with today.
0: <laughs> Get effed. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I am. No, you're not. Why do you say that? I don't want to go into it. What, because you live with me and we fight all the time? We don't fight all the time. Yeah, we don't. So I don't understand what your deal is. Every now and then we have a... You're the one who comes into my room and farts and then leaves. (laughs) Every now and then we have a bit
1: of a (laughs) flare-up.
0: Um... (laughs) It's weird conversation because mum was a mental health nurse, so it's hard to just talk to her like a mum about it.
1: It's terrible. People who are depressed going into a pu- the public system is just...
0: But I was more than depressed. Like shopping. You keep saying depressed, but... Well, depressed, I had post-traumatic I have, stress. Yeah, and a symptom of that was depression, but it was just the post-traumatic stress disorder is what I needed to deal with. I mean no, I mean that's the thing I know that nurses
1: avoid basically communicating with their patients. Mm. I mean and no offense in in some mental health units a lot of them their English isn't the best. I'm not being, you know. No, it's true. Well, and in mental health that is so important being able to communicate. Yeah. In English Oh, you know, unless.
0: I mean, I just, you know, I just got plonked. I, I, but oh. I, I needed to be there. Like, I yeah. needed to just sleep, you, like for three and a half safe. weeks, exactly. But that's the bare exactly. minimum. That's yep. it. They just make sure you can't hurt yourself, can't hurt anyone else. They feed you three, three times and a and half day weeks, and that's it. They would have said, okay. Around about three weeks, that's when the medication
1: kicks in. No, I supposed wanted to leave. Supposed to, Yeah, but I, after three weeks, yeah. it's supposed to work reasonably well. So they kept you a little bit longer than that.
0: They wanted me to stay another week. And I got to the point where I think being in there was depressing me. I was like, I need to leave here. Well, you I, must like, have been feeling a bit better. Yeah, I was. I was just like, I need to get out of here because it's... You can't... You're so closed in in there and like... I don't know, I just it was awful. I was glad to because they have to be really
1: careful as well because it happens quite regu- regularly that a depressed person suddenly picks up mm. and they seem better and all the rest of it, you know. Then they go home, they top themselves.
0: Well, I was surprised at because how Because
1: they have the energy and the motivation Whereas before they were so depressed they didn't even have the energy or the motivation to do anything.
0: I was surprised that they it was as easy for me to go as it was because they. I kept telling them I wanted to leave for a few days and they were saying, no, no, another week, another week, we think you need another week. And then um, I had a meeting, the weekly meeting with the psychiatrist where he checks the medication and so I said to um, Tony, can you bring in my GHD, my hair straightener, and a bunch of makeup and some nice clothes? And so Tony brought this stuff in. I did my hair. I did my makeup. I, like, you know, had basically been in my pyjamas with my hair in a top knot like it is right now because I'm sick, but, like, for the whole time I was there. And so then I just got dressed up. I looked nice. My hair was blow-dried, and I walked into the meeting, and I remember the psychiatrist's face. Like, he didn't even recognize me. And that's all it took. He was like, Yeah, okay, you can go. I literally just did my hair and put on makeup, and they were like, Well, see, anyone could have done that, couldn't they? Yeah. Someone who had organized
1: everything and everything was at home, and their plan was about to, you know, come to fruition. And I remember
0: Tony picked me up. (laughs) Tony oh. picked me up when I was discharged and he'd made me a Crazy Lady playlist for the car. Oh, true. Yeah. Gorgeous. And so we played this music and the first oh. thing I wanted to do was go to KFC because I'd been eating fucking gross roast beef and beans for three weeks. Mm. And so we, we listened to the Crazy Lady playlist and we went to KFC. Yeah, yeah they
1: were there a the most wonderful friends. Tony. Both of them, like... Yeah. Jacob, he'd go as much as he could as well. Yeah, he did, yeah. Didn't Tony go and see you every day? Yeah, every day. Like,
0: seriously. Yeah, Tony was there every day. What treasure. And he would hide in my room so that he could stay outside of visitors' hours. Really? Yeah, I remember one night, um, visiting hours finished at, like, 6pm, because that's when you went to have dinner, and we had to sneak him out of my room at, like, 10.30, because he'd (laughs) stayed for, like, four and a half extra hours. And Auntie Robin came too Mm. from Perth and she had to – they were actually really helpful, Auntie Robin and Uncle Peter, Dad's brother and his wife. She came and I remember, like, I had to call – because I had to defer uni because I was missing uni and um, I couldn't even talk to them on the phone. Like, I couldn't even talk on the phone. I was Mm. so, like – So did they turn up unexpected? Did she –
1: turn up unexpectedly? No, she was in but Sydney. You knew she was coming. No,
0: she uh, was in Sydney visiting her sister. Oh, okay, And then yeah. when Rhiannon contacted her and told her that yeah, I'd been hospitalised, yeah. she came to the hospital. That's good. She came a few times, yeah. a few times. And when she saw, like, how much of a mess I was, I couldn't even talk on the phone. She, like, called uni for me and she, like, got all my classes. Like, she deferred uni for the semester and... um. Mm. And then her and Uncle Peter, like, gave me – they basically financially supported me because I didn't work for almost a month. Yeah. And so, they paid my rent. And then when I got out and I was, you know, until I got that job at Kmart, which I freaking love Kmart. I love it so much. Best homewares in the world. Please sponsor us and give me all your furniture cuz I want run it. Out of but vacuums. I will say, but I will say that working there is fucking awful, especially at Christmas when you have to wear elf ears and a t-shirt that says happy- Santa's little helper.
1: I've seen happy people there,
0: but I had to pay rent and I didn't want Uncle Peter and Auntie Robin to have to keep paying for stuff, so I just took the first job I could find and that was it. But it was pretty fucking grim. Like thinking I'm 24 I just got out of a mental ward, and I'm Santa's little helper at Kmart. <laughs> like, what is my life? Seriously, what is my life?
1: <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, picking you up from Burwood.
0: <laughs> got to pay the rent, man. Got to pay the rent. <laughs> Fuck, that was grim.
1: That was so grim. <laughs> you little soldier, weren't you? Going off? <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. A uniform. Got
0: to pay rent. <laughs> I hope Kmart does sponsor us. What a dream. It's amazing now. It wasn't good when I worked there. Like, their homewares now are neck level.
1: Neck level. What does that mean?
0: Next level, mum. Pardon? Next level. I thought you said neck level. Yeah, I did, because that's the lingo. That's neck, what how the kids neck, say it. Neck. That's how the kids say it. Oh. Okay, thanks, mum. In the next episode. I can't believe you're saying you don't remember that night. I can't really remember it. I sort of remember, it, but I don't remember it. What do you remember?
1: A chair in the tree. Yeah. But I don't know how to tie a noose.
0: Well, I don't know. You I said a makeshift noose. Go, you I would like, have had to
1: have googled it. I remember I watching. Too, I would have been too drunk to follow the directions anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Mum Says My Memoir is a Lie is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Recording assistance by Felix Bray Audio production by Nick Slater Executive producer is Jamie Show. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app